Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host. We're continuing with our series of webinars put on by the WCA Pathways Task Force. And this one is on dealing with the fallout of disaffiliation votes. If you're on the other side of that, or if you're dealing with grief and loss, all of that brings a lot of emotional impact to churches and to pastors and to lay leaders. So we want to make sure that we have some resources for you. And Joel Watts, who is a licensed therapist here in Colorado, joined us to talk about some of those resources and some ways that you can manage that grief, to manage your emotions, and also look ahead in hope to what's coming next. So I hope you'll take a listen to this webinar and also check out the resources that we'll add to the show notes. And we'll also be sending those out. If you subscribe to the WCA Pathways email, wcapathways at gmail.com, we'll make sure that you get those resources as well. Here is webinar number three, Dealing with the Fallout. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the WCA Pathways webinar on dealing with the fallout. Tonight, our guest is Joel Watts, who is a licensed therapist based here in Colorado. So welcome, Joel. Tell us a little bit about yourself so that people could get to know you this evening. I appreciate it, Bob. I am Joel Watts. I'm a therapist here on the Western Slope of Colorado and Delta, Colorado, which is, in my personal opinion, the best town in Colorado. Um, I was not a lifelong United Methodist, but I did become a United Methodist back in, it's been a good while now, 2012, I think, graduated from United Theological Seminary. And my path has changed considerably since how I became United Methodist to a lot more conservative and orthodox evangelical approach. Um, I have three children. I operate a very large private practice here and continue to... I was telling somebody the other day, Bob, was that in seminary, everybody would say, oh, you must be called to be a minister or a pastor. And I'm like, nope, absolutely not. We'll never do it because I don't like people enough. And then I, I made a deal to go and be a therapist with God. And I really feel like now God's like, yeah, yeah, go be a therapist. And now I'm in a ministry because we we feed the hungry. We take care of people who need housing. We do all that stuff as long as as well as other therapists. So God got his way. Yeah, as he as is usually the case with it's us. Usually the case. That's right. Well, you and I got connected on social media, and then we had a chance uh, a couple months ago to have uh, br- uh, some lunch here in Monument when you were in town, and we were talking about this. And I thought, man, Joel would be the perfect guest for this particular topic that emerged out of our original town hall meeting for the task force. So I know you've been following all this with some interest. What are some of the emotional and spiritual implications of the United Methodist split that you've been observing as you've been watching social media and as you've been talking to folks? Well, I think, you know, to to go all therapist on us, I think there's a lot of what we would call disenfranchised grief, Bob. And it's, um, it's basically grief that's not recognized. And what I see is a lot of people who maybe the, the vote failed or the fact that they have to vote 
um, or they, they may have to leave. And the church plant is exciting. I see that. But I also see that there's some grief that's still there. And in hearing messages from lay laity as well as pastors alike, there's there's just that disenfranchised grief that just kind of exists out there because you have to leave an identity that you've had for so long. Yeah, an identity crisis and kind of a what's next sort of crisis. Um, change is always difficult for folks. And, and change, you know, and change is difficult because, you know, I was, when I became United Methodist, <clears throat> It, for me, it was such a breath of fresh air to find something rooted in faith and and things like that, and come to find out not not necessarily always the case. But there is that that thing you just cannot put your finger on is why I am not happy about this. We want to follow God. We want to um, uphold the teachings of the church. We want to do those things, but there's still that part in our heart that says maybe that's where I first found Jesus or the, the parents went there or my kids got married there and, and you're having to leave that identity. It It's a part of your history. I had someone in my office today who asked the question, well, if, if the church blows up and we leave, I mean, my husband made the, the Bible stand on the altar. Um, do I, can I take that? What do I, you know, that's, that's part of, my investment here. And, and I could just hear the grief in her voice. It was, it was palpable um, about what to do about that. Mm. And, you know, at that point you can get into who owns property and all that kind of stuff. But at that point it was just listening to, to her emotion around that. I mean, there's a lot of that, that uh, that's going on. I mean, there's certainly conflict and hurt feelings and congregations at, uh, on the other side of these votes. I see that, you know, when in some places where the vote fails, by a slim margin that there are a lot of hurt feelings and things that happen right after that. It's almost like somebody tosses a, for lack of a better term, tosses a grenade into the midst of the, of the body. So how do we address that kind of situation? I mean, I'm thinking mostly really post vote right in that immediate aftermath, what kinds of tools and resources would be most helpful for pastors and lay leaders to think about right in the midst of that, that the heat of that conflict. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe do something a little bit unorthodox, if you will, but I think that pastors and lay leaders have to have some self care. And I think they have to think about themselves first because pastors are notoriously thinking about others all the time. And in this, they're going to have to understand, you know, they're going to have to do a lot of self care for themselves. And that way they can also care for the wounded in their flock, whether it's a new flock, old flock, or a different flock. I really think that you're going to have to, to do a lot of self-care. I think some of the tools are the basic tools of therapy, finding a way to grieve what has happened. One of the things I do in therapy, when we're talking about trauma, and this is a trauma, this is a, a traumatic event, is when we talk about the definition of forgiveness, which is the abandoning of all hope that the past will be different. And one of the tools is, is that once we can come to the idea that we can never go back, we have to continue to go forward. It's, it's a good way of letting that grief go. I like that. We can't go back. We can only go forward. And yeah, I think and that's a helpful to, word. And I think there's a lot of forgiveness. Um, when I left the United Methodist church, 
I I had to do the personal forgiveness thing. And I was only there for a couple of years, but I, I was leading a Sunday school class. I was doing other things. And I left when someone was elected bishop in Colorado. It was done. I'm out. Can't do it. And so I had to do forgiveness of leaving even the Sunday school class. I had to, to seek my own forgiveness for that and some of those things. And I think that we have to recognize that this is a real death. And it's not a church separation. It's not a new, con- it's a death. It's a death of something hopeful. The, the warriors for the last 10, 20 years of trying to right the ship it's not that they failed. It's just that that dream has died and we have to give space for the death of that dream so that we can see the resurrection of something different. Yeah. I think the word you used grief is absolutely accurate. When I've been talking to people about my own thoughts about this, my own feelings, grief is the dominant word that comes to mind because despite all of our best efforts, I think we're in a culture that says, you know, if you do everything right, you'll get the right outcome. And in this case, that's not the case. We're going to lose some people over this no matter how much we try to build bridges and so forth. People we love, people we've invested in, people we've cared for, people have cared for us over the years. Um, that grief is is palpable, and I'm not sure what to do with it. You know, that that's for me, except for journaling is one practice that I've come to trying to put it out on paper. Are there other kind of practices that you would recommend for people who are dealing with grief? And again, this is, this is grief. And I know some of it may, I'll tell you, like I tell my clients, I know this may sound, sound silly, write a letter, write a eulogy, write an obituary, put your grief into something that says, I recognize that this past has died or the hope for a different future has died and write that. Some people like to write that as a letter and then burn the letter or to burn the letter, throw the ashes in water. It's something that you, and it is. And and like you said, you have to get it out. And so honoring that by getting it out and writing it down, writing it down as an obituary, as a eulogy, or even the, it sounds like a gimmick, but having a funeral service of sorts, just a, a grief get together to share memories of where you came from. One of the other things is that, and this is the thing that I've seen people struggle with, is that sometimes we're attached to those buildings. We know the walkways, we know the pathways, we know the Sunday school room. I know that's where I prayed and that's where God answered that. And so also giving attention to the fact that sometimes we lose those very tangible items that we were so familiar. It was muscle memory. And now we have to relearn muscle memory. I, yeah, I, I think there's just all of that involved and, and especially this coming on the heels of COVID where we lost some people I think just about every church lost some people in the midst of, of COVID. So there's a double grief, I think, on top of this. And I love the idea of kind of walking through that. I know, yeah, I mean, I've been journaling through this and writing stuff out on paper, putting it out of my head onto paper, because otherwise I lay awake at night and think about this constantly. Um, we're still moving toward a vote at my church. I know a lot of other churches are. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of what if 
And what happens to me on the other side of this, which I think is natural, whether you're a lay person, and I think especially if you're a pastor where your livelihood is involved, there's a lot of uncertainty. So how do we move forward into an uncertain future? When we think about grieving the past, how do we not get so bound up and worry at the future that we we lock up? And I, I think this is where we come at it from a faith angle. And we understand that we we either move forward or we allow God to put us where we need to be. And resisting that second part, we may move forward, but if we are able to simply rest and sit still and understand that God is going to place us where he, he wants us to be, I, I think that takes away that that stress. And the, the catchy term is acceptance. And the acceptance part, I think, comes in as we've done everything we can. I don't know where God's going to put me tomorrow, but I will be wherever God puts me and work to accept that. A lot of times we want to get ahead of God, I think, and and really get to that move forward part. But what if God doesn't want us to move forward right now? He just wants us to sit still and know that he is God because we have just come through a death, a divorce, a schism, a separation, and and it hurts. And what if we just need to sit with that pain so that we recognize it for the next generation? Yeah. Wesley's covenant prayer comes to me in the midst of these. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to put me to serving. You know, let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I mean, that's a dangerous prayer, and we pray it right there at the beginning of January, usually in the covenant service. I also have been reading through Dan Wilt's uh, Lent uh, book for from Seedbed called Jesus in the Wild, which is all about the the temptation narratives there in the wilderness. And I, I'm finding that to be a really helpful resource because this is a wilderness period. It's a liminal phase for many of us between the familiar and and whatever lies beyond the other side of the wilderness. The wilderness is not a place you want to live. Israel had to go through the wilderness. Elijah went into the wilderness during his time of anxiety. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. We're, we're in this liminal phase, and that's a really difficult place to be. And we, we tend to think that the wild animals there in the wilderness are bigger than they are at times. Would you, would you agree? I, I do agree. I mean, it's something that a, not a lot of people go through in, in 2,000 years. We we have to look at those examples of what does that wilderness look like? And, I, and one of my favorite sermons to preach is Deuteronomy chapter one. When you're at the base of Mount Harab and God says, okay, you've been here long enough. Time to get going. And part of that is that we have to sometimes stay in that wilderness at the base of that mountain and face those things until God says, okay, now I'm ready for you to move. Yeah, it's a time of testing and I really recommend Dan Wilt's book to you, Jesus in the Wild from Seedbed. It's really a marvelous resource. I've been really, it's been blessing me in the midst of this time. It seems very timely. Um, You know, but you mentioned, I mean, on the other side of this, I think there is hope. And what spiritual and emotional resources can we draw on to fuel that sense of hope? I always turn to church history, and I have not yet seen in history where making the right choice for God does not win. 
you know, and I, I, I know that that it sometimes sounds so hollow when we go, well, yes, but I don't know what tomorrow looks like. I only know what last year or the decade before looks like. And I think a lot of times it's that trying to rely fully on God. One of the things that I've been struggling with is do my prayers about relying fully on God, do I really believe them? And I think that sometimes during these wilderness moments, during our emotional struggles, we have to focus on, do I really believe that? You know, the in scripture, it says, um, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I, I hope God, I have hope in you, but, but help my parts where I don't have hope. And I think in this trying time, it's where we discover what areas of our life that we don't necessarily have hope in. Hmm. Let's go to some questions from the chat here. Patricia says, two of my three churches are in the disaffiliation process and the one that is staying uh, because of monetary and age of the congregation, not for theological reasons, is now realizing the anxiety that comes through separation. I am put in the middle of the split, literally and figuratively, and I'm being pulled in opposite directions within the churches and the denomination. Any suggestions other than acceptance and how to stay centered through the pushback on both sides and in the hierarchy? That sounds, I mean, that's, that's a difficult place to be in because you're, it sounds like that Patricia is local pastor. So you have two, three church, two of three churches, two are, so one stay and two's leaving. And now you have to decide it's that pastoral thing, Right is how do I give care to that situation when clearly there's some other ones leaving? There's not an easy answer, is there? Yeah. Not in this case, because when we talk about acceptance, we're not just talking about accepting the fact that it's happening. We're talking about the fact that it's out of our control. If we give up control and realize that sometimes we don't have the answer or we don't know what to do, we just have to follow the prompting under the spirit. That's acceptance doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we like it or don't like it. It just means that I realize that I don't have the answer. And in this situation, it sounds like the other congregation that's staying, that anxiety is going to build up to where it's going to, it's already affecting the pastor. So maybe pulling from the congregations that have left and asking for a prayer circle or some sort of band meeting as we tra- travel through the congregation that did leave. So you do have that support. I think this is a common scenario, particularly even within single congregations where you might have two different factions that are going in opposite directions and the pastor feels kind of caught in the middle to some degree. I mean, you might have your leanings and you want to have one outcome, but you're trying to pastor everybody through this. And so in some sense, you have a kind of a cognitive dissonance with with the process because you want to be able to pastor everyone through it, but it's not always easy to do. And that's part of the struggle on top of the grief is where do I put my energy and my emotions as I listen to people? Um, I always draw on the Friedman stuff, Edwin Friedman stuff on systems, you know, trying to be a non-anxious presence, which is really a, a discipline that you have to, you have to work in your cortex, not in your emotions at that point. Correct. That is correct. And part of, I am not a pastor. I am just a therapist. 
and I know that pastors have to deal with a congregation that is sometimes diverse. How do you pastor people who are now in so much diversity that some are staying, some are leaving? Those who are staying may have such anxiety. And and frankly, sometimes you just, speaking as myself, want to go, well, leave. But again, that goes back to that grief and that attachment. And I think part of the, the role of the pastor in that situation is to help them find their faith in God and start to find that identity more so in what God has for them if they do stay. Bob says, in my conference, if the vote to disaffiliate uh, passes, I would assume, the DS immediately calls for those who wish to remain United Methodist to join him in another room to begin thinking through alternatives. Your assessment on the emotional health of that sudden action. So to Bob, I, I'm going to use my words very cautiously here. Um, if they wish to remain in the UN and he takes everybody out, he's interrupting the pastoral process. I think that the emotional health of the DS is probably one of, of control. And I see that across the board with the bishops who are remaining inside the U.S. or the UMC. It's all about control. We have to control the message. We have to control the narrative. We have to control the money, the property, and so on. I would say that the emotional health of that action is something that's going to have long-lasting effects on those people because the DS may leave and suddenly they're without a pastor and they're supposed to be looking for the DS and the DS is not there. I think it's a deeply unhealthy thing that pastor knows that congregation one way or the other. And it's that pastor's duty now to help people who are on the losing side of the vote to come to terms with them having to stay or leave themselves. Yeah. And I'm not sure the context of this question. I, I know that I had a conversation today with one of our cabinet members about, you know, what would happen if, if we passed the disaffiliation vote that he would want to meet with, those who uh, want to remain United Methodist about what their future might look like. And, and I said to him in that case, because he, he asked me about it as the pastor first, I said, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's appropriate because we had that, we had that conversation. So I think it's, I think it's okay if, if the pastor is involved because you know, your people and there needs to be some connectivity there at the same time, you don't want to block off anyone from having conversations that they need to have in our conference one of the one of the stipulations is that uh, the property negotiation is based on the percentage of the vote and and the viability of ministry so the ds needs to determine that in order to move forward so i said yes it's it's absolutely fine for him to meet with those folks who might be on the losing end of the vote but want to stay united methodist but i think it's an i think it's really important this is me speaking now and i'm not the guest but i think for pastors who are going through this process especially if you know your vote's going to be close i would really recommend you set up a meeting with your district superintendent um and and have a a good heart to heart before you get to this process to find out where they are, let them hear where you are. It may not move the needle, but at least you've had that conversation, which I think is really, really important. Um, it'll help. It'll help eliminate surprises. If anything else, I've really tried to be proactive in that with my cabinet member that's been well received. And I, I think it's, I think it's building for a healthier process. This is not a, a great, 
a great situation, but I think it does make it a healthier process when you're doing all the communication you can do in advance. That's just my two cents. And, and let me add also, as it looks like Bob's adding to it, is that we don't have to respond to unhealthy actions with healthy actions, unhealthy actions. Is that sometimes, yes, it's going to cause contention. We don't have to add to that contention purposely. Lynn says, uh, what would you say to a person who has left a United Methodist Church for reasons of conscience and is now being ostracized by former friends who stayed in that United Methodist congregation? You know, that's I think that's one of the that is definitely on topic. And I think that's one of the, the things that we see when we're talking about that identity crisis. We're talking about peer pressure. We're talking about um, something like an obedience to authority type thing. What I would say is that they have to remember that Satan is real and that good people under horrible systems can do some unhealthy things. And so not maybe not stepping back, not seeing the former friends. And I'm, and I see that word former friends as if it's a definitive action on the friend and maybe they stay our friends. And if they believe in Christ, then we should treat them as brothers and sisters and, and kind of see it that way. I would say that we step back and look and see where that vitriol is coming from. Yes, it's it's going to be hard, and I, I understand it. So when I left the UMC, my then pastor just completely refused to talk to me, even though I was there every Sunday morning. And it hurt. But I also understood where he was coming from, and so that made the hurt a little bit less. And again, what I would do is say, find a support group of people who have also left so that you can talk about that grief and pain. When you're talking about preemptive actions to ease pain, I think prayer. I do think maybe writing down what you have received from the UMC and what you, we would call it a gratitude journal. So maybe a couple of things for 30 days, what you've received from the UMC and what you hope to receive or give to the GMC. And and maybe one or two on each item for each day for 30 days. So you could we can acknowledge the passing and and be ready for the resurrection. And, and we see that when we're talking about whether it's an upcoming divorce. Um, and as therapists, we deal with that. And that's one of the things that we would do with the divorce is okay, so let's honor the past. And describe what we hope for the future. I mean, that is helpful. That is helpful because we, many of us have given decades to the work of the United Methodist Church. There is a grief in leaving, but it's not, that that past is not all bad. And in fact, there's a lot of good that's come from that. There's a lot to celebrate. And I think that's a really helpful word to say, let's celebrate what we can celebrate and and then grieve what we've lost, but but then begin to move on. That That's a very helpful word, Joel. I appreciate that. Any closing words that you'd like to give, Joel? You know, yeah, Bob, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the time that we have here. Um, one of the things that just kind of kind of comes to me is that if we look at this as a divorce, and, and I know we see that bantied about, about on the blogosphere, on social media, and if we see this as a divorce, and maybe we should, one of the things that I find is that the more we focus on the why, the less likely we are to move forward. We, we know the why the divorce happened. Not everybody was faithful. 
and I think it comes time to acknowledging that, acknowledging that that we did everything we were supposed to do. And I, I'm speaking as, as in that divorce sense. And if there's a way that we can, again, just honor the past, the stuff the UMC gave us. The U, what the United Methodist Church gave me was a Trinitarian belief in God because I was raised uh, modalist or, you know, uh, oneness gave me a, a wonderful understanding and a view of Wesleyan theology and the Wesley covenant prayer. I was just talking about that with a client yesterday and it gave me all of these things and I can focus on all the bad stuff, but the wonderful stuff that it gave me, I can take on to the global Methodist church. And I think that part of the things that I see with the people that we, that I talk to is, is we focus on those things that it took from us. And if we can just focus on the stuff it gave us and move forward on how can we give to this new community that honors Christ, it will help with easing that grief. We do have one more question here from Donna. How do you deal with people's feelings who have not had the opportunity to vote on disaffiliation? So they never had an opportunity to even make a decision. You know, what comes to mind is places like North Georgia, Arkansas, or some of these other places that have shut down those those things. And I think that what we talk about is waiting in patience and starting to grieve now because it is clear, and I don't know if Donna's talking about her or somebody else, but it's clear that people are going to disaffiliate one way or the other. And if we start the grieving process now before that vote comes one way or the other, it makes it easier after that vote. What I would say again is we also we do the prayer, we do the support circle, and we start talking about what does it mean to disaffiliate within ourselves and with that support circle. Because those feelings are real. And the more and more we see the successes of churches and congregations moving, I think um, West Texas almost has it seemed I, I was talking to somebody the other day that how many churches in West Texas has just went to global. It's 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 frustrating not to have had that vote yet for some people. And so I think we celebrate the successes and we start to deal with our grieving processes then. Keith asked the question, how can we help the spouses of clergy who are dealing with anger? I think we, we go in as laity and we wrap around those people just like we would anybody else who had just suffered a major tragedy in their life. That, that clergy spouse, we are going to help take you out. Maybe we'll give you some meals, um, especially if that vote's coming up, because that anxiety, I cannot imagine the anxiety facing a pastor and the pastor's family going to a vote. And so maybe we say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. I, I, I want you to know that we love and support you no matter what. You're, you're leading us down the right path. Let me help you and your family out with a meal. Let me get your mind off of this. And let me know, let you also know that we're praying for you. Andrew asked the question, how do we deal with those in denial that a change is necessary or coming? I serve a more conservative church, but many have been out of the loop with what is going on. I tried educating on them on it for 18 months. Yeah, how do you how do you deal with your own frustration about the fact that you've given a lot of information, but people aren't necessarily buying it until 
it's uh, it's too late. I know we have T-shirts that our staff wears occasionally that says it's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. So when people ask questions about stuff that's already, you know, happened, we're like, yeah, we we've told you about it for a long period of time. So there's a sense of frustration around that. Any any tips for how you can deal with that? Andrew, I think you've done everything you possibly could. A lot of times people are just going to shelter in place. And the more so when there's a lot of information coming and frankly, change is so scary. We find people will ignore. There's something called the theory of motivated reasoning, which to me explains so much of human behavior. It is that the risk of change feels like you are about to lose a limb and they would rather lose a limb than they would change. And so we ignore it. We stick our head in the sand and we do mental gymnastics just to avoid the idea of change. Andrew, you have done everything you possibly can. The frustration, if you can turn that to what is really going on, it has nothing to do with you, you as a pastor, you as a theologian, and you and your walk with God. People just don't like change. We have one more question. What can the regional chapter leaders do to help pastors with meetings, speakers, series, etc.? Is more information going to be helpful at this point, or are there other pastoral things we ought to be doing? I think the I I think that the information's out there. I mean, if I want, I googled the um, a term today, and there's just tons of it. I can Google UMC, tons of things. Hey, why is my UMC breaking up? I I can. It's not the information. It is that pastoral sense of what can you do? You can provide support for the church. You can provide support for the pastors. You can provide support for the lay leaders. And I think that you can do speaker series, but people aren't going to go unless they've already made up their mind. At this point, you've made up your mind one of three ways. I'm staying, I'm leaving, or I'm going to ignore it until it goes away. So I think that's where you start to support your pastors. You start to support your lay leaders. And you do provide information, but you do the pastoral heart of this is where God wants us to go. And if you believe that, tell that to your congregation. And I think support is there saying, you know, we're praying for you. We're praying to go to global or we're praying for a return to our Wesleyan values or we're praying for this and start. And we used to call it uh, chestifying down south. And it's the idea of when we pray, we give God exactly what we are feeling. God, I want to go global United Methodist Church, global Methodist Church, because that is where we can serve you. And that's where we honor the the faith of our fathers and mothers. That's where we honor what Christ has given us 2000 years ago. And so you start to pray those prayers and then live those prayers because people are going to hear your prayers. So people are going to hear them more so the prayers and the sermons than they are the information. I have found when people want to talk about this, that one of the best postures I can take is simply to listen without responding or trying to convince or try to give more information or try to steer them or, you know, but just listen to them and listen for what's behind it. Uh, Because there's always something behind this. People deal with sense of abandonment you know, they might have abandonment in their lives. It's the same kind of thing that happens in those systems. 
uh, theory ideas where the, when people talk about the thing, oftentimes it's not the thing that they're talking about. It's the emotional baggage that comes with the trigger that this has brought forth for them. And so being able to listen deeply to people, I think is a huge pastoral task in this time. Just being able to let people express their grief or their frustration or their even their anger without having to respond to it. Because we're, we're always in a mode of wanting to give more information. And I, as we've gotten deeper into this process, this has just been my experience, that listening more deeply, taking time to have a cup of coffee, let somebody speak uh, their, their grief has been, uh, been huge. Because this is a death in so many ways. And in many ways, pastorally, it is kind of like dealing with, with a death in the family. I will, I will offer, there's a lot of resources on disenfranchised grief that you can find um, that may help pastors and lay leaders, one, understand what they may be going through, and two, understand what's going through with um, fellow congregants, but it's, it's disenfranchised grief, and there are wonderful books and resources on how to help people articulate that type of grief. Because when you can articulate it, a lot of times that is the beginning of that healing process. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us for this third webinar on dealing with the fallout. I want to thank Joel Watts, our guest. Joel, how can people get a hold of you if they have more questions? Um, I can I put my email in the chat. Yes. All right. So it's going to be Joel at Integrated Insight Therapy. I did not think of the length of this email address when I set it up for the name of my company, but it's joel at integratedinsighttherapy.com. You can feel free to email me. Um, and if anything I can do, and I, I ask, I think that William asked about if I can give you some key resources for disenfranchised grief, I'll, I'll do that and send that, that your way. I think that one of the, one of the key elements that when, when I was exploring disenfranchised grief was, is when people leave churches even if they're just moving to a different church, it's hard on them across town, across state or whatever else. And so disenfranchised grief is, is really where my heart is when it comes to this particular topic. Well, if you send those to me, I'll make sure we put those in the show notes that we send out to everyone and we'll be happy to pass those along. Our next webinar is next Thursday, February 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern We'll have a panel to discuss uh, what it means to remain in the United Methodist Church on the other side of this. So I want to thank you all for joining us, and thank you for those who are listening on the podcast. We hope you have a good week. May God bless you all.